0: Good afternoon. I'm here and pleased to be joined by Dr. Scott Peoples. Uh, Dr. Scott Peoples is a professor at College of Charleston in Charleston, South Carolina. And Dr. Peoples, I I came across you because I did a Google search because my senior elective called Great Short Fiction was reading Cask of Amontillado. And uh, we're talking about Edgar Allan Poe a little bit, who I've always been very passionate about. I've always loved Poe. I don't know why I have kind of an attraction to his stories, and also I think the fact that I have occupied a lot of the same cities that he did when he was alive. Um, Mm -hmm. But I immediately ordered your book, which is called The Man of the Crowd, and I've been making my way through it and learning a lot about Edgar Allan Poe as the person and kind of his whole life. So I appreciate you um, coming in to talk a little bit about Poe today and your research.
1: I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me so
0: dr uh peoples when did you um when did you kind of get into poe like when did you find interest in him i guess in your own life
1: uh well i've i mean i've always liked poe i can remember when i was a a kid hearing um hearing his stories even before i i think maybe even before i could read at all and certainly before i was reading him uh, i remember uh, like older siblings telling me their own versions of stories, like the Cask of Valentino, uh or the Black Cat, just as kind of you know scary, uh, you know scary bedtime stories. And so uh, I've al- I'd always known about him, and then just kind of went through phases throughout my life where I would uh, get into reading more Poe. Then in grad school, um, I took a course on the modern short story. So, kind of like uh, what you were just describing, um, I uh, became really interested in just the history of the short story, how it you know how it developed. And uh, I started to think about Poe differently at that point, um, not so much just in terms of somebody who uh, focused on the Gothic, but somebody who really kind of uh, theorized what a short story was supposed to do. And who was really dedicated to the craft of writing short fiction.
0: Yeah, I talked to my class about the, what is his, what is his essay called? The Composition. um, The Philosophy of Composition. The Philosophy of Composition, where he talks about a short story, something that should be read in one sitting. And um, he kind of outlines what is important and what goes into the short story as a
1: piece of writing. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's a fairly simple formula, but it's it's really been, uh, I, I don't know, I think it's something that people who write about short stories and people who write short stories still go back to, the one sitting rule. Uh, and more, I think more importantly, what, what goes along with that is the idea that every sentence, every word has to count and has to contribute toward an overall effect. Uh, and if you read some short fiction that predates Poe, you can kind of see why people needed <laughs> to hear that. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's kind of loose, episodic, um, just doesn't have that kind of aesthetic coherence that Poe's best stories do. And so I think that, um, yeah, those two rules, you know, it has to be uh, it has to be short enough that the reader is really under the writer's control for the whole time, isn't taking a lot of breaks. And the writer has to make every sentence, every word count toward a a single specific effect. Um, That's it in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important because I think any great writer today is taught or tries to get rid of unnecessary language, unnecessary words. And, And Poe is really the first person who names, I guess, the rule of effect that every single word needs to contribute to some feeling within the reader, some purpose in the story.
1: Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, and he did, you know, he felt the same way about poetry. Um, in fact, the philosophy of composition is primarily about the Raven. Um, and, but he, but, it, but basically, it's the same, he has the same rules. I mean, he doesn't like epic poetry, particularly because uh, you, you don't get that kind of intensity and single, uh, single effect. So uh, he, by the same token, uh, even though he wrote one novel, Um, he wasn't really that, you know, he didn't have ambitions to be a novelist. Uh, he really thought that the short story was where it was, was happening for him.
0: So he's known, I guess, a lot, uh, today because of his short story writings. Um, but I think he, and I think I read this in your book, he thought of himself as a poet. Um, and, and popular culture really thinks about Poe in a lot of different ways. maybe we could talk about just poe's perception of himself and i guess our perception of poe in history as a as a person
1: mhm well i think it it changed a little bit over the course of poe's life he uh early on he saw himself as a poet published 3 books of poetry that that really nobody bought or read um before he was 21 um and so that was kind of his originally his vision for himself but then he discovered that he had to make a living and uh, he just and and you know figured out that he wasn't going to inherit his foster father's wealth so while he was living in Baltimore in the early 1830s he began writing short fiction and sending it off to basically contests uh, prize contests sponsored by magazines um, and saw this as a way to You know ultimately make a living so between writing for magazines and editing magazines poe really found his career so he shifts um in the 1830s and begins to identify himself as a magazinist which is a term we don't really use so much today but he um but that was his world and part of the reason that he wrote short fiction was that it was suitable for magazines Um, and so that was really, that, that's what Poe did. He edited magazines, he wrote for magazines and sometimes newspapers, but periodical fiction, um, it needed to be popular it needed to, to grab people right away. And he saw that and he thought that was, you know, that's great. That's the wave of the future. And that's what I can do.
0: Now, is that why he chose such a dark subject matter for a lot of his tales is because that was what attract people's attention and sold to these magazines?
1: Yeah, I think I think absolutely. Um, I think it's easy, you know, not that Poe had an easy life or what, or didn't have some demons, but I think it's easy to overstate um, that kind of internal, uh, <laughs> internal psychological motivation for his subject matter. I think more than that, he was writing in that genre because he knew that people liked it and that uh, it would get attention. Um, one of one of the first really kind of gruesome Gothic stories that he wrote, uh, Berenice, uh, he got into a little bit of a, um, you know, a little bit of an argument with the editor of the Southern Literary Messenger about it, um, basically taking the position that uh, if you want to sell magazines, you need to publish, <laughs> you need to publish stuff that people will really be grabbed by, even if it even if it seems to be in bad taste. Um, and to be appreciate. I think he said something like, to appreciate it, you must be read. Uh, and this is the kind of thing people want to read.
0: Now, he was also a critic of other people's work, and that's how he got the nickname. And I just learned about this, the Tomahawk. Um, it doesn't seem like he was very well liked amongst literary circles during the time that he was really writing about other writers.
1: Um, yeah, he was, um, <laughs> he was good at making enemies. Um, he had friends too. I mean, he wasn't just, you know, uh, he wasn't scorned by everybody, but he did get into, um, he did get into some s- verbal scrapes and, uh, he lost, you know, he lost a couple of editorial jobs because of just having you know, difficulty in getting along with, uh, whoever was his boss um but he yeah he he would he wasn't afraid to pick a fight with another writer um and that was also kind of i think part of his strategy write scathing reviews that are also entertaining and sarcastic so that people will uh take notice you know Mm -hmm. uh take notice of you it's almost you know it's almost kind of like the logic of social media today in a way it's um If you if you want to get attention, sometimes you have to be outrageous um, or even, you know, kind of risk angering other 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 people. Um, And he wasn't afraid to do that. So he he would take on uh, established literary figures um, and he kind of positioned himself as the truth teller who would who had the courage to write a negative review of somebody who was widely respected. He would accuse, he on, on some occasions, accuse other writers of plagiarism, um, just seemingly just to create a controversy. He's really the first tw- Twitter
0: troll, you could say.
1: <laughs> in a way, yeah. <laughs>
0: um, so you wrote the book, The Man of the Crowd, and I really like the title of this book because I have just read the story, The Man of the Crowd, uh, in which Poe puts a narrator who... I really like the beginning of that story because he's observing, I guess, the city scene, and he's documenting all the different types of people that you would see in a Philadelphia or a New York or a London. Um, and towards the end, he's, I guess, following this person around who is continuously blending in with the crowd. Um, I guess the other piece, to this title, and, and maybe you could explain a little bit more about the title selection, but. It's really about uh, how Edgar Allan Poe, when you think about him, you think about a guy who wrote dark tales in a basement removed from everybody else, but in reality, he was so much at the center of urbanizing America when he lived in, you know, he was born in Boston, lived in London for a little bit, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Richmond, all of these major growing cities. So I'd love to hear you talk about just the title of this work and maybe Poe as the center of the crowd in a lot of these cities
1: as they were growing. Yeah. I mean, well, as you said, I mean, you did a, you, you just did a great job of uh, you know, sort of pitching my book because um, that was the idea was to uh, counter the notion that I think a lot of people still have of Poe as being isolated from his world and, and try to describe him as somebody who was really in the middle of uh, in, the, in the middle of his world, in the middle of uh, specifically the cities where he lived, but yeah, the man of the crowd. I, I um, you know, I had a hard time coming up with a title for the book, um, and uh, I went with that because I felt like that story. It's not exactly obscure, but it's not one of his best-known stories, so um, I could kind of just, you know, play on that a little bit. Um, it's not that Poe, it's not that I see Poe as the character in that story who was the man of the crowd, but just that in the same way that the narrator of the man of the crowd has this fascination with urban life and spends a 24 hour period just walking through the streets of London following this guy. Um, I see Poe as also really much more of an urbanist and much more somebody who was Um, influenced by and fascinated by the cities where he lived than we typically give him credit for.
0: I think a lot, again, about Poe is very misunderstood from our perception. And I read your article about the way that Poe is portrayed in movies and, you know, television, I guess, uh, especially the recent movie Pale Blue Eye, which you wrote a little bit about. But there are so many different ways that he's characterized today that i think are not true but i think add to his mystique and the myths around him like he was a heavy drinker um that he was lonely in his life that he was penniless and poor um what are some of the major room rumors or myths about poe that really are not very true
1: well i mean some of them are true i mean he was um he did have a drinking problem uh and it was a major contributor to his, you know, lack of material success and his inability to really achieve uh, some of the things that he wanted to in his career, um, and he was, you know, he was poor. So, um, I think some of the things that people either overemphasize or kind of mythologize about him—he um, was not a drug addict. Um, I think uh, I'm not quite sure where that came from, uh, but. At some point, people you know, began to just sort of a, a assume, I think probably because he has characters in some of his stories who, you, who uh, use opium. Um, and he did, there was one incident where he, he took laudanum, which is a, a tincture of opium um, and, and, and wrote about it, but it wasn't a habitual thing and it wasn't, I mean, unlike the drinking, which really was a, a, a problem for him. I don't think drug use really played that big a role but um yeah i mean another um let's see i i think um the other thing really is just that poe was writing kind of out of his own experience when he wrote uh some of his more macabre stories and that he must have had a kind of um you know just sort of a tortured soul maybe a, a streak of sadism or something because of characters like the narrator of The Black Cat or the narrator of The Raven. Um, He did write a lot of narratives in first person and really kind of innovated the use of first person unreliable narrators. But I think that's kind of led a lot of readers to think, oh, he's actually writing about himself, um, which, you know, is, is generally not the case.
0: Well, would you say that he is a tortured man? Was he a tortured soul? He had a lot of death in his family, his mother, his stepmother, the woman he fell in love with, his friend's mother, right? Um Virginia, his his bride who I want to talk
1: about a little bit. Yeah, I think I mean, I I think of it as more somebody who experienced a lot of grief. Um as you as you were just mentioning, he he lost um several people specifically women mother figures including his own biological mother um and really you know and and really uh suffered a lot of grief because of that um so yeah i mean it's hard to say that poe had a, a a happy life um he was i think also ground down by not extreme poverty but you know but um but sort of poverty line uh, level poverty. He could he was getting by, uh, but never really prospering. And I think that was a real source of frustration. Um, and I think he was unhappy to a great extent because he knew um, he knew how good he was at what he did, and felt unappreciated for it. Um, he resented the fact that there were other writers who he, you know, he didn't regard that highly, but who were celebrated and making a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think it's safe to say that he, he, he was unhappy a lot of the time, probably even clinically depressed toward the end of his life.
0: Um, Another myth that um, is popular, I guess, here in Baltimore is that he he died downtown in a gutter like a tragic tragic yeah. death when he was drunk is that true how did he actually die
1: well it's it's sort of close to that but not but yeah the gutter thing i, I don't think there really is a gutter um, <laughs> they have a they have a um an image or an
0: arrow downtown where it points right <laughs> to the gutter where he's right supposed to have died
1: yeah so i mean i mean poe died at uh in in a hospital the building is is still there i think it's part of the johns hopkins medical complex um it was called washington college hospital at the time uh so he spent his last uh his last few days in a hospital bed Um, he was discovered um in pretty bad shape in a tavern um so the part about him being drunk is pretty much true i mean he had been he clearly had been drinking um over probably a period of several days and had been just kind of i think out in bad weather he had also recently been sick so i mean he was you know i think it was some combination of um illness possibly and you know neurological fever and um and and maybe some alcohol poisoning. Hmm. Um, but he didn't, but, you know, he wasn't literally found in a gutter and he didn't die in a gutter.
0: Hmm. Um, the other thing that, you know, when I'm going over in class, the biography of Edgar Allan Poe, before we read his stories and his poems is, you know, this comes up is that he married his cousin, Virginia, who was much younger than he was. Um, can we talk a little bit about that and, just kind of how that relationship, because he was in love with her. It sounds like, I mean, through reading his correspondences a little bit and some of the descriptions in your book is that he loved her, but it's hard, not, it's hard to picture that being okay, you know, during even this, this time period.
1: Yeah. And as I say in the book, I mean, I still can't quite, uh, um, figure it out. I mean, uh, it's a strange relationship. Um, the The fact that they were cousins probably wouldn't have bothered people too much at the time, but the age difference was highly unusual. Poe was about twenty six. She was thirteen. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, that was that was weird, even even in the 1830s. s. Mm-hmm. Um, and Poe's motivation for marrying her at that time is also, Um, a little unclear. I mean, I think that mainly he wanted to, he wanted to hold together this family that he had found or to some extent created with Virginia and her mother, Mariah Clem. Um, And he didn't want to lose them. And he saw the possibility of Virginia being taken in by another cousin, uh, Nelson Poe, and breaking up that, you know, that three person family unit. So, I don't know if it was i, I mean I, I I think it was more just that he wanted to stay with both her and uh, and her mother as as uh, a family at that moment. Um, but he loved her. I mean, it, you know and and I, I, <laughs> yeah <laughs> beyond it's... that I mean, it's a very it is a kind of strange relationship in the sense that. When he writes to her, he often calls her "sissy." Mm-hmm. Uh, he Muddy, right, is more like a little sister in some ways, or he'll he'll say "my sweet little wifey." I mean, it's yep. never kind of what we think of as a mature, grown up kind of marriage, um, and that's partly because of the age difference. I mean, Virginia was still only, um, you know, she was probably still only in her mid twenties when she died. Um, I mean, it's a you know. Yeah. yeah, it's it's it, it's like I said there's no getting around the the strangeness of that relationship.
0: Well, I find the relationship he had with a friend's mom, you know, just as strange. I think that's described at the beginning of the book. He he fell in love with this woman in her 30s, right, when he was 15 or 16.
1: Yeah. And that too. I mean, I think he was he saw her as a kind of idealized mother figure. Um Uh, and, you know, saying that he fell in love with her, I wouldn't, you know, I'm not sure exactly what that meant for him at that particular moment, but Mm -hmm. he was infatuated. I mean, he, he wanted, he spent a lot of time with her and she, um, and he was pretty devastated when, uh, when she passed away. Um, yeah, I
0: think, I think in addition, and, and this is a compliment to the book because I'm finding it really interesting. How you're describing the effect of the cities on Poe, but also the effect of different relationships on Poe, I think is just as interesting to me. At least, um, you know the, the the mother figures, the relationships he's had with women, but also I think John Allen is a very interesting relationship because for his whole life he really lacked a father figure at Ground Poe. I mean, his, his father wasn't around growing up. He only had John Allen to. Mm-hmm. To really look up to, and it doesn't seem like he had much love for John Allen, and and vice versa. Is that
1: accurate? Yeah, I mean, I it's it's a complicated relationship, and I'm I'm glad you brought it up because I think biographers typically look to the loss of his biological mother um, when when he was about three years old, and then that being followed by the death of Jane Stannard, who we were just talking about, the death of Francis Allen, his stepmother, um, his foster mother, sorry. Um, and then Virginia later on as this series of losses of, uh, of of women. But his relationship with John Allen is really important um, for the reason that you just stated. Um, he never really knew his, his real father. Um, and I think he really wanted John Allen's love Uh, in addition to wanting his inheritance. I mean, so it's, and it's hard to untangle that. Uh, There are a lot of letters between Poe and John Allen that still exist, um, probably more than with any other person. And uh, it can be difficult to tell to what extent Poe is trying to manipulate Allen um, because once he gets to a certain point, he's always in need of money. Um, and to what extent he's really crying out for uh, his foster father's love? Um, they were they got along very well when when Edgar was a boy. Things started to fall apart when he was a teenager. Um, and they never really got back on track. I mean, they kind of went through cycles of reconciliation and then estrangement. But from about oh, from about the time Poe was sixteen or seventeen, it's a very rocky relationship, and um, I, there are some of the some of the letters that Poe writes to John Allen are just heartbreaking, um, and, and I really don't think it's just that he uh, that Allen had resources that Poe needed. I think Poe really, um, I, I think he 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 really yearned for a better relationship with with John Allen.
0: Yeah, and, and he went to the University of Virginia for a little bit. And, and I actually, I think I said this in my email to you, I was down at University of Virginia a couple weeks ago and visited Poe's dorm room, which is all set up. It's mm-hmm. funny that the, the Raven is set up everywhere in there, but I guess that makes it seem like, you know, catches people's attention as they walk yep. by. Um, but he needed some money at UVA, and John Allen wouldn't send it to him. Partly because he gambled away all the other uh, stipends, I guess, he sent prior. Um, And then Poe goes to West Point, which I always find an interesting move, at least how we picture uh, Mm Poe culturally. You know, this guy who's a poet and he writes, you know, dark fictional tales about the raven and the black cat going to a school like West Point, which... My sister went to West Point and I know how serious and cutthroat that place is. And I never really pair Edgar Allan Poe with that institution, but he did pretty well there.
1: Yeah, if he had. um, I think if he had had stayed, he probably, you know, it's hard to imagine how different his life would have been. But um, it wasn't that he couldn't hack it. Um, He had already been in the army for uh, uh, for the better part of two years. Um, and so, I mean, it's a, it it is, it's a really interesting part of his life because he, he had been in the army from 1827 to early 1829. Um, he got a, with John Allen's cooperation, he got a substitute and left the army. And I think part of how he sold Allen on this plan was to say, what I really want is to go to West Point. and so Allen supported that move, you know, with political connections. Poe was able to get an appointment, um, and he did well. As in, you know, he did well in the army. He did well at West Point, but I, but I think what happened was after he had been at West Point for a relatively short period of time, it became clear that John Allen was not going to um, uh, wasn't going to continue to take care of him uh, financially and in fact Alan had remarried uh, and was going to have more children and Poe was going to you know Poe had almost no hope at that point of inheriting any of Alan's money and um, I think he just sort of said well you know screw it. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, His vision of himself as a kind of gentleman soldier who maybe wrote poetry on the side was just shattered. Uh, and I and in fact, Allen, when he came, when he went up to New York for his marriage, he wasn't that far from West Point, um, and he didn't invite Poe. He didn't come to see him. I mean, he made it pretty clear that he didn't really want to have anything to do with Poe anymore. Uh, and that's the moment where where Poe just throws in the towel, gets himself court-martialed from West Point, and starts over a new life, um, with without John Allen. Um, although he continues to write him to ask him for money from time to time.
0: Now, I, I'm perplexed by the relationship between John Allen and Edgar because as a foster father, I mean, if, if you adopt a child like Edgar Allen Poe, like don't you, I guess, what was it about their relationship that caused so much dislike? I mean, it seems like at a certain point, John Allen was just done with Edgar Allen Poe.
1: Yeah, I mean, he never did adopt him. Um, So legally, that was part of the problem. Uh, Legally, Poe didn't have any claim on him. Mm. Um, From Alan's point of view, he gave Poe a lot. Um, A comfortable home, an education, um, money, social standing that Poe had no birthright to. And Poe, from Alan's perspective, was ungrateful um, and, uh, and, and rebellious uh, and kind of threw away the opportunities that Alan offered to him. So it's a real, again, you know, those letters that Poe writes to him are, you know, they're sort of painful because it's this mixture of anger towards Alan for, from Poe's perspective, not supporting him enough, not loving him, and just a sort of, you know, regret and yearning and Poe sometimes admitting that he made a lot of mistakes. I and mean, it's really, you know, it's, it's a, a real soap opera. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think from, from Alan's perspective, he pulled Poe, um, you know, he gave Poe a great opportunity in life and Poe sort of threw it away and resented him for it and didn't, you know, and was completely ungrateful. Hmm. Um, from Poe's perspective, Alan had an obligation to him and he never really fulfilled it, that he didn't give him enough money to really support himself when he was at UVA uh, and that he never really loved him. And so it just kind of went from there.
0: It does seem, though, that Edgar and Poe had such a passion for the art of literature and poetry that he although he wanted money and he wanted this inheritance he was so stubborn to his craft that he wasn't willing to you know say I'm going to do something else to provide for myself I want to stick with this and and write
1: yeah that's I mean and that that's pretty much true he did um, in the early 1830s he was hoping to get some kind of you know government job, he, he it wasn't completely out of the question that he would do something else. But for the most part, um, he did dedicate himself to the literary world, to writing and editing. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, he, he. I think he always hoped that this would become sufficiently remunerative Mm-hmm. Um, I think he always imagined, particularly that he could run his own magazine, and that that could be uh, a way for him to become really more prominent in the literary world, and and also uh, to make some money. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, I mean, that's another part of Poe's biography that often gets overlooked: is he has this career-long dream of founding his own literary magazine and it never, it never works
0: out. Well, I'm, I'm right at the part where he's trying to start the pen when he's in Philadelphia. Yep. And it seems like that is going to be promising, but that doesn't work out.
1: Right. I mean, I don't want to spoil it for you, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it doesn't, it doesn't happen.
0: So I'm, I'm curious about um, just your thoughts on Poe's depiction in media. So the new movie that came out is with Christian Bale. I was all excited to watch it. Um, because it's Edgar Allan Poe staged at West Point, uh, a couple murder mysteries, and I, to be honest, I couldn't really get into it too too much. Um, what are your thoughts on the movie and kind of just the way Poe's portrayed? And is there any movie that really captures him as a person?
1: Well, The um, Pale Blue Eye. I mean, I thought um, Henry Melling was really good as Poe, and I liked the way that Poe is depicted in in the film. And I, I liked the book, the novel that it's based on, too. Um, I didn't you know i I didn't think the movie really worked uh, ultimately, but I don't think it was because of uh, the way that that Poe is portrayed in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I don't know it's been a while since I've read the book, but i I feel like there were some subtleties in the book and some things that just didn't make it into the movie, and so the mo- the plot seemed more contrived uh on film than it did uh in the novel uh but what i like i mean what i liked about the way that henry melling played poe is that he's not this kind of tortured artist Mm -hmm. because at that point in his life he you know that that really wasn't who he was he was an earnest kind of nerdy uh would-be soldier who was a little bit older than the other, than the other cadets Uh, and that's pretty much how they play him. I mean, a really smart guy who is a little bit out of place at West Point, but is trying to make it. Um, So I thought that was, I thought that was good. Um, I don't, I don't think Poe has ever really been portrayed accurately on film and um Honestly, I'm not even sure what that would look like. I mean, Poe is still kind of an enigma in a lot of ways, um, but I still kind of feel like they're not doing you know they're not doing him justice anytime somebody tries to uh, to to put Poe on film. Mm. Um, and, and it's an interesting history. Um, several years ago, there was a, a film uh, called The Raven. Uh, with John Cusack playing Poe as, uh, well, he was Poe, but he was cast into the role of detective trying to solve um, a a serial killer uh, series of crimes. Um, And yeah, I mean, you know, John Cusack did fine, but it was just, it made Poe to be, Poe out to be kind of this hard-boiled, Kind of detective figure that, just you know, it was it was it was entertaining, but it wasn't really, I, I think, a serious attempt to represent Poe. Hmm. Uh, and there's never really been, I mean, there have been a couple of older uh, biopics about Poe, but there's really no, in, in recent years, no one has really made a serious effort to do that. Hmm. Uh, and of course, then there's all of the movies that are, somewhat based on post stories, uh, you know, just dozens of them over you know, from the nineteen, the dawn of cinema, <laughs> really, on up to the present.
0: I, I do like I do show the Cask of Amontillado movie that is on YouTube, and even though it's very pixelated on the YouTube version, I just love the way that that's portrayed. Uh huh. Um, so what are your favorite stories, poems? Of Poe to teach. I mean, I teach *Cask of *Telltale Heart*. I have my students read *The Raven* because a lot of them, I don't know if they really realize that the Baltimore Ravens are connected to this this poem. Mm-hmm. So I make sure that that is part of my curriculum in Baltimore City. I mean, you have to read *The Raven* and really understand how that football team came to be. But yeah, uh, how about you? What do you what do you like to teach and what is your favorite poem or story, if you have one?
1: Um, I typically, when I when I only have like a day or two to spend on Poe in a class, like a big American literature survey, um, I usually go with either The Black Cat or The Fall of the House of Usher. Um, and Usher might be my favorite Poe story. I think it's probably the most complex. Um, and even though it's very readable and it's got a really strong... Plot, it's also kind of difficult in some ways that are. I mean, I think it's difficult in good ways uh, because you have to. You, you can come back and read it again and again, and there's still going to be some things you're not quite sure about. Um, it's um, it, it's just a great story. So, I, I, um, if if pressed, I would probably go with that. I really like The Man of the Crowd um, as well, uh, and that's partly because. I focused on it to some extent with the book and made it the title of, of the book, but um, I like to give students that, that story to read because it defies what you think is gonna happen in a post story. And that might be a little disappointing. Um, nobody gets killed uh, and it's not really scary none of the sort of gothic conventions actually yeah, happen, but um, that's to me, that's sort of what makes it interesting is it's just this um, this, this sustained exploration of the city uh, and this weird relationship between the narrator and the man that he's following that just remains mysterious. And the, the whole point is that there's there's no there's no gotcha at the end. There's no big climax. It just, you know, he just gives up uh, mm-hmm. figuring something out. Uh, so, I, I mean, that's not a very, probably doesn't sell the story very well, but I but I really, I'm sort of drawn to that, just the the um, ambiguity of that story. Do you think that
0: Poe is trying to make a point in that story? I mean, I think I, I did read a little bit about your thoughts on that but I feel like there's some point about city life that he's trying to maybe communicate with the fact that the narrator in that story can't locate the man
1: yeah I and mean, I think that's I think that's it I mean he has spent the first uh, third or so of the of the story identifying people as they walk past the window uh of the cafe where he's sitting and he's he kind of prides himself on being able to uh, pigeonhole um, classify any any type of person who walks by and so here's this this enigmatic figure who he 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 has to follow him because he doesn't already know who he is um and it turns out at least in the way that I read it that paradoxically he reflects the city itself, or he—he's because he kind of he sticks to the crowd. He is a reflection of the crowd. Mm-hmm. He's not any one—he's um, not any one type of person in the crowd. He is—he's—he is the crowd, mm-hmm. uh, and that is what the narrator can't quite fathom. And so, in the same way that the the modern city was indecipherable to a lot of people and seemed um disorienting and confusing that whole sensation seems to be um embodied in this one in this one figure Mm -hmm. who can't be alone i mean that's that's the other thing is the the just that motif that idea of being a person who can't stand to be by himself but who isn't really interacting with the people that he that, that he's around uh and so he's just kind of a night crawler i mean he's just going through the streets looking for a crowd to be part of but he's not socializing um yeah I mean, that's just kind of i mean I, I that's just a very cool conundrum for me
0: yeah that's a really cool discussion topic i think in my classes is talking about loneliness and how it's possible to be lonely or, you know, by yourself in a city like New York, right? Where there's a ton of people around you, but you could still feel that you're on your own, right? You don't feel attached to anything. And I think that's that first line of that story, right? It's in French is something about being alone.
1: Yeah, the great great unhappiness or uh, disease not to be able to be alone, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Excellent. Well,
0: Professor, I... I really appreciate you coming in today to talk about Poe. I, I love the subject of Edgar Allan Poe. I always have. Um, I'm really enjoying your book. Uh, let me just ask you one more question. Why, why Charleston? Why South Carolina? What brought you down there?
1: Oh, um, well two things. Um, I grew up here. I was born in Charleston. Um, and I was fortunate enough to get a job here. So, uh, that's pretty mu- that's pretty much it. I mean it was a very happy coincidence for me uh, after a, a, a couple of years at other positions after getting after finishing my doctorate. Um, I you know I landed a job back in my hometown and uh, that's just you know worked out very very well for me. Um, there is a Poe connection to Charleston you may you may be aware of. He was stationed at Fort Moultrie uh, on Sullivan's Island. Which is uh you know which is which is a barrier island just in in the Charleston harbor uh throughout the year of eighteen twenty eight so um people in Charleston feel this you know the this sort of connection to Poe maybe not quite as strong as Baltimore but um uh but there is the kind of a, a Poe vibe in Charleston. are you a ravens fan um <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'll say yes. I mean, considering that you're that, that uh, you're in Baltimore, um, I, I yeah, kinda. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think. Yes. Um, and and just one more thing that I've been talking to Chesra a little bit about is is Poe's grave. And this is another thing: is I have my students for extra credit go down to Poe's grave and take a picture uh, during his birthday time in o- October, November time um, when we read Poe. But someone puts what is it, Cesare? What is it?
1: Tennessee on his grave. Right. Do you know anything about that? Yeah. 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 So, um, that was a tradition that dates back, I think to the 1940s. I mean, it had been going on for a really long time and the, um, the figure is known as the Poe toaster, um, who would leave cognac and roses at Poe's grave every year. Um, on, yeah. And, and, uh, so for many years, like nobody tried, you know, people knew about it and they would kind of watch for this figure, but nobody would interfere. Nobody would try to uh, reveal the person's identity. Um, and then I think it was around the two. Yeah, it was in, the, in 2009, um, Poe's 200th birthday. There was a note that said something about the torch. Uh, I can't. I can't remember the wording, but the tradition was discontinued. And I think other people have kind of tried to do it on their own since then. But up until about 2009, it was presumed to be the same person doing it every year. And people would gather to kind of hold a vigil and watch for him, and also to keep other people away so that nobody interfered with it. Hmm. Interesting. There's a um, novel by uh, Laura Lipman, uh, who's a mystery writer who's from Baltimore. that uses that as a a big part of the plot oh Um, yeah and it's set in baltimore and now i'm having trouble remembering the title of the book but it's but it's got a kind of um you know it's got a cool po motif throughout the uh, the the novel
0: okay well we'll have to check that out but um cool well thank you so much professor i appreciate your time today it was a lot of fun learned a lot Uh, i'm excited to finish your book here and yeah thanks very much i appreciate your time I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Of course. Talk soon. Okay. See ya. Bye.